Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There is a story for everyone here, because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybooks together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. If you are a history nerd like myself and you have an interest in Stoic philosophy and Stoic wisdom, and if you are someone that has struggled with anxiety in the past, then this is definitely a conversation you don't want to miss. And I'm glad that you are actually here today. My guest is none other than Donald Robertson. Now, for those of you that don't know who he is, he's a writer, cognitive behavioral psychotherapist, and he's a trainer. Donald specializes in teaching evidence-based psychological skills, and he's known as an expert on the relationship between modern psychotherapy, CBT, and classical Greek and Roman philosophy. He was born in Irvine, Scotland, and he grew up in Ayr. So if you guys love the Scottish accent, you're going to love listening to Donald. I could have listened to him for hours, to be honest. He worked as a psychotherapist for about 20 years in London, England, where he ran a training school for therapists before emigrating to sorry, immigrating to Canada in 2013 to focus on his writing and training courses. He now divides his time between Greece and Canada. He is also an experienced public speaker, which you will definitely get a lot out of that during our conversation. He has written uh, several books, in fact, and many articles on philosophy, psychotherapy, and psychological skills training, including is one of his best books, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, The Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius, uh, which you can go and get a copy of that anywhere books are sold. He is very well versed in terms of his credentials. Uh, It's a long list, so I won't read them all out for you. Uh, But he is someone that is also the founding member of Modern Stoicism, a multidisciplinary disciplinary team of psychologists, therapists, and academic philosophers and classists 
responsible for running Stoic Week. All right, my friends, if you get something from this conversation, and I have no doubt that you will, uh, it is fascinating to hear about modern philosophy as well as ancient Stoic philosophy and how they can somehow connect which one is better, which one uh, can help us in this day and age today, and how does ancient philosophy help with when it comes to people that are struggling with anxiety and same with modern philosophy as well, which we do talk quite a bit about during this conversation. Also, my friends, I have teamed up with my good friend, Mary Ruth, from her brilliant company, Mary Ruth Organics, to give you guys an amazing deal on some incredible health products that are organic, They are great for you. They help you improve your overall health. There is a ton of products on her website, maryruthorganics.com for you to choose from, supplements, things that are going to benefit uh, your brain health, every aspect of your life. I personally love their digestive enzymes and the vitamin C gummies. So if you want to take charge of your overall health, then I highly encourage you guys to go to maryruthorganics.com and at the checkout, just use the code J15, that is J15 for 15% off your order. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me in this story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than the Stoic philosopher himself, Donald Robertson. Well, thank you, Jay. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for the the very, the very thorough introduction. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to our chat today. I am very much looking forward to diving into a bunch of topics with you about psycho psychotherapy, uh, psychology, more or less, and the Stoics, <laughs> ancient Greek philosophy, all those amazing things. But before we dive further into it, my very first question for you that I love asking all my guests at the very, very start of my conversations is, what does success look like for you? What does success look like to me? Um, that's a question that in a way would go right to the very heart of Stoic philosophy. Funnily enough, I suppose mm-hmm. Stoic philosophy as it happens in a sense, is all about reinterpreting what the majority of people think success means. So the Stoics would say, and I agree with them basically, that we come into the world, we look around us, we see other people kind of running around trying to build up a reputation and get property and wealth and stuff like that. And as little kids, we kind of emulate what we see. We're just beginning to learn language and then we start to reason and stuff. By that time, it's too late. We're already copying all these people running around in the rat race and stuff. But if we're lucky, as we get older, we start to reflect on and question our own existing assumptions. And we start to think, hang on a minute, maybe health, wealth, reputation, all these kind of external goods aren't what life is really all about. You know, maybe there's some inner good, like something about our character that's more important fundamentally. And uh, the Stoics want to say that's what they call arate, which I would translate as moral wisdom. And uh, whereas when most people would perhaps translate it as virtue or excellence. And so I think success is about achieving a kind of transformation in your character, a sort of moral insight or wisdom, and not necessarily about having a really big house, a fancy car, or you know, a high status job or something like that. I love the element of building on your character because I think that's, I have something similar 
uh, to you. I think that is really, really important. But you mentioned like it goes to the heart of Stoic wisdom and philosophy. And did all the Stoics from your experience and your research have this uh, same understanding of what success was for them? Or was there any any Stoic that kind of yeah. stands out to you the most? They all basically, this is arguably the, the essence of Stoicism in a way. It's their theory, um, their virtue ethic, as we call it. So it's, it's one of the main things that they all basically agree on. Um, they disagree about other things, but it's one of the things, I guess, in a sense, that makes a Stoic a, a Stoic. And they led very different lives. Maybe they interpreted those principles in practice in a slightly different way. Some Stoics were more kind of reclusive uh, and distanced themselves a little bit more from public life, whereas others like Marcus Aurelius, an obvious example, uh, couldn't have been more in public life. And, you know, he was, Marcus Aurelius was Roman emperor. He led the Roman empire at the height of its power. Mm. So he was, uh, he had to contend with reconciling his uh, virtue ethic, his philosophical principles with this job that he had of running the whole of the known world. Mm. <laughs> <Basically>, <laughs> most of the known world. <laughs> what sort of constituted a Stoic back then? And are there any sort of modern Stoics today or is that sort of gone out the window as time has gone on? Well, what constituted the Stoic in the, like, so first of all, we think of a philosophy nowadays as something, you know, we think of philosophy as something that you learn at university, you study it in a, you do it in a library, right? You read yeah. books or in a seminar room or whatever. But I suppose one thing to explain from the outset is that that's not what philosophy was like in ancient Greece and Rome. So in ancient Greece and Rome, there were lots of different types of philosophy or schools of philosophy, and they had different ideas about what it meant to be a philosopher. Mm. So at the one end of the scale, you have Diogenes the Cynic and the Cynic School of Philosophy, who weren't very bookish at all and thought philosophy was mainly about transforming your character. It's building strength, about building strength of character. And so you, you can compare those guys almost like Hindu yogis or holy men. It's so philosophy is almost like a yoga. It's a spiritual path. Yeah. Form of self-discipline for them. And uh, some of those guys didn't write any books. Um, some of them didn't really engage in philosophical debates, as we would understand it. And then at the other end of the school, you have uh, the other end of the school, you have Plato and his school, the academy, which is where we get the word academic from. And the, the clues in the name, Plato's school was more bookish and more theoretical and put more emphasis on discussion, kind of like we, we have in modern academia. So in the ancient world, there, there was a kind of dichotomy, there was a contrast like uh, in many people's minds, there's different types of philosophy. And then there's a whole kind of spectrum in between. But actually, even Plato's School of Philosophy put more emphasis on philosophy as a lived way of life, as a day-to-day -day spiritual path than, than modern academia does. In modern academia, philosophy is almost, almost entirely a kind of bookish theoretical pursuit. And it was more of a yoga, more like a kind of Western Buddhism in general in the ancient world. It's interesting for me, sorry to interject there, I know you're going to continue, but it's interesting for me looking at, so in modern times, we're able to look back on the Stoics and their wisdom and see uh, what what has been recorded, right? But how about for, for them back then, like how did they 
were they just figuring this stuff out on the fly through experiences? Because yeah. you mentioned that Plato had he had books. I mean, he was going, he was sort of the, the more book kind of guy. Um, like where this is like hundreds of years ago. So where did they find all this this wisdom? Well, let me go back a step because you asked me a moment ago what a Stoic was. So Stoics were one of the sects of philosophy that existed. So Stoicism was founded in 301 BC uh, in Athens by a Phoenician merchant from Citium, a town uh, in Cyprus, actually. Um, so he was a foreigner. He was an immigrant uh, in Greece. And the, the Stoics had this big, complex philosophy that flourished for five centuries, so a long time in the ancient world. And it, it, there were many aspects to it. It would fill many, many, many books, uh, of which probably less than 1% survived today, right? But, uh, and there were many, we know the names of about 60 or 70 famous Stoics. The most famous ones are not, not Zeno, the founder, who's not that well known today, but much later Stoics are more famous today to us today. Uh, I mentioned Marcus Aurelius, also Seneca the Younger, uh, Epictetus are the three most famous, and also Cicero, who many people may have heard of, mm. uh, who was a famous Roman orator who wasn't a Stoic, but wrote extensively about Stoicism and was very interested in Stoicism. So he's, Cicero is one of our main surviving sources for literature and Stoicism. But also Socrates, who most people have heard of, was a kind of precursor of the Stoics and very much influenced the Stoics. He was kind of like the godfather, if you like, to the Stoic school. He died a couple of generations before uh, Zeno founded the school. He died in the best century before Zeno founded the school, I should say. So that's a little quick history lesson. That's who the Stoics were historically. Um, and then the oh, I should say they had a big influence on Christianity. Yeah. Um, so Christianity eventually replaced pagan philosophy, including Stoicism. The, the close schools were closed down uh, by Christian rulers, basically. Uh, but there are traces of Stoicism in Christianity. So it survives kind of in a fragmentary form down to the, the present day. And then it became more popular again in the Renaissance. And it's kind of going through a resurgence today. So you ask me, are there modern Stoics? There are people today who are really passionate about Stoicism. It's going through a resurgence in popularity. But most of them would think of themselves as kind of students of Stoicism rather than being as kind of exemplars or role models of the ideal that Stoicism describes. Uh, basically, that's who, who the Stoics were. And then where did you, you were kind of asking me where they got the books from and things like that. Well, there were, we, you know, in general, we there were a lot of books in the ancient world. And... Uh, they were, I guess, different. There were tended to be fewer copies of many books. So when a library was destroyed in the ancient world, that was a big, bigger deal, obviously, than it would seem to us, because it may be that many rare manuscripts were destroyed. Books are gone forever from history, like when the library at Alexandria was destroyed. Um, and so many, even over the course of Stoicism's history, many of the founding texts that Zeno wrote um, were probably lost uh, and only f f fragments of them probably survived by the time of Marcus Aurelius, nearly 500 years later. And today we've lost most of the Stoic texts. We only have uh, about a, roughly a book's worth each from Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus and, and Cicero. So these guys, though, had books from earlier philosophers that they could study. And uh, they learned there was like an oral tradition of philosophy that was kind of passed down 
through stories and in other forms. Um, we think of philosophy also as something we do like in essays or lectures. Again, in the ancient world, things kind of worked a bit differently. So there would be uh, plays, comedy plays that contained references to philosophy. Um, there would be little anecdotes and metaphors that people passed down that contained philosophy. And so there would be dialogues were a common source of philosophy. So philosophy was contained in different sorts of literature that that's what people would read and discuss and uh, study. A little bit different from the, the way that we study things today. What's curious to me is imagine if we actually had all the texts in available yeah. to us. Because if you're saying that we've only got a few texts available and how much we've been able to, how much wisdom we've been able to glean from just that small amount. Imagine what we could yeah. glean from the rest. You know what I mean? That'd be mind blowing. I'll tell you, well, I'll tell you a little bit of trivia that's pretty weird. Um, so you've, everyone's heard of Pompeii, which was yep. like destroyed by the volcanic eruption. There's another town called Herculaneum where the, the archeologists found a library um, where there were many scrolls. Um, actually, there's a story at first that they didn't realize what the scrolls were. They just found these kind of lumps of charcoal and were burning them as torches. And then someone noticed that there was kind of a bone through the middle and they realized that what they thought was charcoal was actually a scroll. And so these scrolls have never been read because uh -huh. they were covered in volcanic dust and kind of, they, they look like lumps of charcoal. But they, they, the pages, uh, 2,000 years old, are kind of fused together, but the ink is still on them. Um, and so there were attempts to very slowly unroll them, then start to disintegrate. Mm. We think maybe one day with uh, technology, they'll be able to scan the pages yeah. and reconstruct, reconstruct. So we have these books which are unreadable because they've been kind of petrified and turned into lumps of charcoal, but the ink is still on the pages. And so one day we will probably be able to read a, a whole bunch of other lost texts from the, uh, the ancient world. That for me, because like when I was in school, ancient history was more fascinating to me than modern history. And just the sheer fact that how people lived back then, the the ideas that they had about life, all those areas. And, and there's some like people like Seneca, for example, very, very wise. And some people like Plato, for example, great storytellers. So being able to listen to or read from their point of view back then. But I'm interested in, because the idea of, okay, so it's ancient history, modern history, choosing between whether or not this is actually real or not. How do we, how do, how can we determine whether these are just stories that they created or it was actual real history? Um, so, well, it, that's going to depend which texts we're talking about in particular let me well let me give me an example right um i've written a, mainly about marcus aurelius so that's the easiest example i can say a lot more about him and actually the reason i chose to write about marcus aurelius is that we know more about him than we do about any other stoic philosopher maybe we know more about marcus aurelius than we do about any other philosopher in the ancient world actually why would that be because he was a big deal back in the day he was the emperor as well as being a philosopher 
So how do we know stuff about him and how do we know it's real? Well, we have his private record of his thoughts. And the first book of it, he talks a lot about the people he admires. He names 17 teachers and members of his family and talks about their character. And sometimes he makes little comments uh, about events. Seldom does, actually, but occasionally he'll refer to events in his life. So we have that. We know a lot about his thinking, but it doesn't tell us that much. And we know a lot about, we learn about the character of his friends and family, but not that much about the events of his life. However, we also have three surviving Roman histories of his reign. And then we have many fragments uh, where other authors have mentioned him in passing or mentions one of his acquaintances in passing or something that's kind of indirectly connected to him. We have archaeological evidence. So I'll give you some examples. The sources we have, incidentally, we have Cassius Dio's Historia Romana. We have the, a book called the Historia Augusta. We have uh, Herodian's History of the Roman Empire from the death of Marcus Aurelius. We have these texts that go into quite a bit of detail. Yeah. And we can compare them to one another. There's three different sources. They're kind of related. The Historia Augusta is maybe drawing in Cassius Dio and some other sources that are lost. So by comparing different texts, that's one way of trying to check their validity. It's not very reliable, but it gives us a kind of rough idea. You know, we can tell if they're contradicting each other, then that shows the information is maybe a bit questionable. But we also have archaeological evidence. So in the meditations, Marcus Aurelius heads, he doesn't even say that, um, uh, this in the form of a statement, but at the top of one of the pages, he writes in Conuntum, which is in Austria. It's a Roman legionary camp on the Danube. So it looks like he's saying that's where he was when he wrote that part of the book, right? Now, you might think, oh, cool, maybe that was true, maybe it wasn't. Well, I went to Conuntum when I was doing research for my book. I stayed there for about a week, and I, I was lucky enough to interview the CEO and the research director at the archaeological park there. And I asked the research director at Conuntum if there were any archaeological finds they'd made recently that were of kind of relevance. Like, like, I think what you're kind of asking that, that mm -hmm. give us kind of hard evidence that, yeah. to know that some of the stuff in the text is true. And he said they found a, a, a grave stele, a, a gravestone um, that marked uh, the remains of a Praetorian uh, legionary. Um, so mm -hmm. this is a, these are the soldiers that formed the emperor's uh, bodyguard, basically. Um, and they were stationed outside uh, Rome normally. And it was dated 171 AD. So it's very likely that the emperor must have been in Conuntum in 171 AD if one of his personal uh, legionaries, uh, bodyguard, died there on in that year. Um, and so that kind of gives us some confirmation of what he's saying. And we actually, we already knew from other evidence that the, the meditations looks like it was written around that date. Um, mm -hmm. So these things kind of line up. So welcome to the world of ancient history where you're dealing with really, it's like the Da Vinci Code or something, you, you know, you go, okay, this kind of looks like it fits with that. And, you know, we have other, other sorts of evidence we have are one of our most common sources of evidence is coins. Mm. So we, we find a lot of coins. Coins tend to survive. And the coins often commemorate events in the life of a ruler, right? Yep. So we know, we get some indication then of some of the 
titles that Marcus Aurelius was granted, victory, military victories that he won and things like that from coins. It's called numismatic evidence. Mm. And we also have the, the least well-known source of information is Roman legal digests, which survive from a later period, but record edicts that were passed by earlier emperors because they constitute um, legal precedents. And so we have a record of uh, well over 100, if I remember rightly, individual pieces of legislation that Mark has really passed. So we can kind of reconstruct an image of what his political ideals or his ethics might have been uh, in terms of the legal decisions that he made. So, for instance, scholars that have studied this kind of tedious information in a lot of detail have concluded that some of the main themes clearly are that he was kind of progressively improving the rights of women, children, and slaves wow. um, throughout the, the legislative record that survives, which can broadly square with the sort of stuff he says about ethics and uh, the meditations. Being able to piece together history, I think, is fun because you can learn so much from it. And this is just like my curious mind going a little bit wild. So you have to forgive me for that. <laughs> um, right. I, I love, love this stuff together. as well. When yeah. we're reading the text, you know, historians often think they naturally, they're a bit skeptical about the stuff that's in the text that survives because some of our sources are frankly, obviously unreliable, right? So the Historia Augusta I mentioned, we generally it's agreed that chunks of it look like they're fabricated about history, that it was written centuries after some of the events that it describes, that the authors had a political agenda. You know, so scholars right out the gate will say, well, we, we have to use this because there's obviously some accurate information in it, but it's mixed in with a lot of really unreliable or false information or, or just mistakes. Mm. Um, that it contains. And then some of our information, weirdly, actually some of our best information comes from satires or, you know, other sources that were never really intended to be completely literal or reliable. Um, so, you know, some of the details that we have about Marcus Aurelius's life come from a, a satirist um, called Lucan, uh, sorry, Lucian, um, who we think well, could be joking. So I'll, I'll give you a really cool example. Mm. Lucian says that there was a religious cult that developed during the life of Marcus Aurelius, and uh, it has some impact on his, uh, what happened during his reign. Um, and the, he said that, he said he makes fun of it. Lucian satirizes it. He says it's a sham. They had this god called Glycon, which means, weirdly in Greek, means sweetie. Like... <laughs> And this god was a snake with human ears and long hair, and it would give prophecies. So Lucian says the whole thing was a scam, and the guy that set it up, called Alexander, had this kind of elaborate glove puppet thing with a, a trumpet and a, an assistant behind a curtain who would speak through the tube that was in the, the puppet head. It was like a sock puppet. Um, and people would go in this darkened room with incense and they'd ask, pay a lot of money to ask a question. And they'd go, like, this weird sock puppet thing. So scholars reading that would naturally think, this sounds kind of made up. Like, you know, I don't, I don't know if we can take this at face value. He, it's meant to be a comedy. Like, so, like, is how true is it? Satire is based on real events, but can we take it literally? But we have coins and statues 
depicting this thing, which you're, you know, you can have fun Googling afterwards. Um, Alan Moore, the uh, the comic book writer uh, today, is alive today, claims to be a worshipper of Glycon, incidentally. Another little bit of <laughs> trivia for you. Because he thought it was the most ridiculous god he could find. And he, he decided that if he was going to choose to, he wanted to choose to worship a god and thought he would choose to worship the most ridiculous one, so he picked Glycon. So that, that's a little bit of trivia. I'll tell you another weird bit of trivia like that about Socrates. Mm. So in the sources that we have, which again are not even like proper histories and it's just kind of like gossip and fragments and stuff. Um, we're told that Socrates was friends with a shoemaker called Simon and he would hang out in his shop and discuss philosophy all day. Now scholars thought, this sounds like it's satire. It sounds like a joke because Socrates is famous across lots of other texts. He consistently um, is described as going barefoot. Like he was, no, he was known for never wearing shoes, right? It was part of his trademark look. So the idea that he would hang out in a shoe shop <laughs> all day talking about philosophy seems like it's some kind of joke right ironic <laughs> yeah it was like, ironic right so they imagine socrates doing philosophy and simon would be like gee socrates you're in my shop all day well like, annoying the customers are you ever actually going to buy a pair of sandals from me <laughs> you know just buy some sandals and leave or all right but archaeologists uh working on the ancient agora in athens which is where these these shops were uh, found uh, a shop. They can, they're pretty good at identifying if something looks like it was the remains of a shop. And they found nails that would be used by a cobbler. So they thought, okay, this is like a cobbler shop in the Agora we found. And then they pulled something out of the earth that must have, they must have thought, this has got to be a joke. Someone must have planted this. So they found the, a fragment of pottery, which is the base of a Kelix. It's the, the base of a, a Greek drinking cup. And it's true that in the ancient world, often people would scratch their name mm. on the base of the Culex. This one has the name Simon written on it, and they found okay. it in a shoe, what was obviously a shoemaker's shop. So they're like, no way. Like, this dude literally written his name and left it in a little bit of crockery that was buried in the ground here. Like, so they thought, well, I guess that story maybe wasn't a joke. Like, maybe at least there was a shoemaker called Simon. Uh, who lived in Athens and had a shop in the Agora. And maybe Socrates did hang out there. Still makes the story funny, though. <laughs> yeah, it's still a pretty weird story. But sometimes, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah, that is that is very true as well. I just remember being in my ancient history class in school and even, like, in university at the same time and being given these, these texts or these evidence uh in front of me and we had to try and figure out okay what what makes this real or what just makes it fiction sort of thing is it just them just writing a story and that always used to fascinate me like the kind of things that constitute whether or not it's it's real or not but i wanted to go back a little bit to uh marcus aurelius for a little bit because you've written three books about the guy um do you think that you've finished writing everything there is to to write about Marcus Aurelius? Well, I've also written two chapters, I think, in other books about him. So I don't think I could write another book about Marcus Aurelius, although you never say never. I mean, maybe I'm going to end up doing it. 
but uh, I'll probably at some point I'll probably write another book chapter, kind of focusing on a. So, for example, I wrote a chapter for a book called "The Cambridge Companion to the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius." It's an academic anthology, and I wrote a chapter about Marcus and psychotherapy. So, exactly. and maybe that I'd write something about a really specific kind of aspect at some point. But yeah, generally, uh, you know, it, it was a, a one of those books is a self help book that contains a lot of anecdotes about his life, how to think of a Roman emperor. The, another one is a graphic novel that tells the story of his life visually and artwork. Wow. Um, so that's a very different type of thing. And then the other one was, the last one that I wrote was the most kind of normal one, is a, is a prose biography of him for Yale University Press that I was asked to write. And all of those books made me really kind of look at his life from very different perspectives. And uh, I changed my views about him a bit as I was writing from these, if, in these different uh, media, mm. these so different formats. For my audience that don't know who Marcus Aurelius really was, are you able to share some insight into who he was and was yeah. he a good Roman emperor? Well, it's funny because people that don't know anything at all about Roman history usually kind of assume all the emperors were were corrupt. I suppose it's like one of the errors that we all make in reasoning. When we don't know something about a subject, we, we know a little bit about it. We just tend to assume that everyone's the same, right? We gen we tend to generalize. So people have maybe heard stories about Roman emperors and they assume that they're all tyrants and decadent or whatever it is. But they really Roman emperors were a mixed bag. They all were quite different from one another. Um and Roman Marcus Aurelius is generally considered to be one of the better Roman emperors. He was a philosopher. And whereas other Roman emperors were quite dictatorial or autocratic, Marcus was certainly, relatively speaking, far less so. He ruled in collaboration with the Senate. He sought the Senate's approval before he made any senior appointments. He uh, served as a magistrate throughout his reign. He studied jurisprudence in a to, like. He was studying throughout his whole life. He was a complete nerd. One thing we can say about Marcus Aurelius, he was a total nerd, right? He was known for it. He's very bookish. He was kind of a workaholic. He took his career as a politician uh, incredibly seriously. And again, we think of an emperor as being like a king, but the Roman emperor was more like a statesman, a uh, career politician, or in, in many cases, certainly in Marcus's case. So it was a, a job for him. And he... Um, yeah, he was he was very well read in philosophy. He was famous during his lifetime as a philosopher. And actually, the other weird thing about Marcus Aurelius is, for the first time in Roman history, when he became emperor, he appointed a co-emperor. Wow. So he didn't rule alone. So far was he from being a, a traditional autocrat that the first act that he, he uh, undertook was to appoint uh, his adoptive brother to serve as his co-emperor. So there were two emperors ruling jointly. So he, what comes to mind here is he sounds like he was a humble man, humble emperor. Yeah, he certainly had that reputation, um, you know, and there are people that in the sources that survive, we do get kind of some gossip and stuff. So there were people, uh, there's always going to be critics. And actually the best sign that we have that he had critics was that there was a civil war during his reign. So there were clearly senators and people in the military who didn't like him. Um, and we can kind of get a gist uh, of the reasons why they might, some of the reasons why they might have opposed him. But he was generally perceived as humble. 
and uh, he seems to have been a very popular Roman emperor uh, among the senators and, and uh, supposedly among the, the general public as well. I do think, though, I mean, even though Marcus Aurelius was somewhat of a, a great em- emperor and, and wise in, in many respects, from my knowledge at least, there was, like, in Roman history, if you know anything about it, there was a lot of civil wars. <laughs> yeah. Simply, yeah, there seemed to be like one thing after the next. I mean, there was one with Julius Caesar yeah. towards the end. That was an interesting conundrum. Um, and then there was other ones that I that I remember more. So it happened with dictatorship and not so much with the philosophers side of things. But I didn't know, actually, I didn't know about the civil war with Marcus Aurelius. That's news to me. They had lots of wars, um, and they were very scared. Another feature of Roman society is that they were very frightened of civil wars. Yes. Uh, so they made, some of the decisions that they make are really so. Actually, funnily enough, this this is a nice segue into something because people say one of the main criticisms of Marcus Aurelius, and even I think Cassius Dio, or one of the historians, says that the only mistake that Marcus made was that he appointed his son Commodus to be his successor. Ah. Um, and Commodus was quite a, a, an unpopular, uh, corrupt emperor. Yep. Uh, he he's the baddie played by Joaquin Phoenix in the movie Gladiator, right? Yep. And the, the histories give him a pretty hard time. They make him out to be a pretty corrupt emperor. Um, but you know, some people say, "Well, what's the explanation for that?" Look, one, you've actually hit on. You've hit just now on the best explanation for why Marcus appointed Commodus emperor, which is in a nutshell that the Senate and the Romans in general um, arguably thought a bad emperor or a a dubious emperor was better than a civil war. And it may be that Marcus and the Senate agreed that although they had some concerns about, they may have had some concerns about Commodus' suitability, they may have been more concerned about the possibility that if they appointed someone else emperor or there was some question over the succession, that it would leave open the risk of another, yet another civil war, which mm. is something that they would uh, desperately be trying to avoid. So bad emperors uh, might be considered less of a threat than the risk of civil war. What was the end like for Marcus Aurelius? Was it a, a good end, a, a peaceful end, or not so much? Uh, he died, we believe, we, he died of some contagious disease. And so most scholars think it, it was almost certainly the Antonine Plague, which uh, broke out during his uh, reign. Um, so there was a plague that's named after him. His dynastic name, his family name is Antoninus. So the Antonine Plague is effectively named after him. And uh, or his family named after his family, and we think that's probably what killed him. So it wasn't his son Commodus. <laughs> the like in the movie, yeah, that that's the, the, some of the things in the movie are kind of more accurate than others. But um, there was some, if I remember rightly, one of the historians kind of mentioned some gossip that Commodus uh, might have asked Marcus's physicians uh, to overdose him. Um, but that assumes that he was already dying. 
Uh, and he was pretty physically frail. So I think it seems most likely that he, uh, most, most historians think the most likely version is that he died of plague. So I want to, good segue into this question, actually. How did you become interested in the crossover between psychotherapy and, I guess, the Stoics and more or less Marcus Aurelius? What sort of fascinated you or what was the catalyst for that? Well, I'm Scottish. And when I was growing up as a kid in Scotland, um, I was kind of had a pretty carefree like uh, childhood. But then, unfortunately, when I was about 13, 14 years old, my father contracted lung cancer mm. and he passed away when I was quite young. And for whatever reason, that immediately catapulted me into a kind of search for some kind of direction or meaning in life. And so at the age of about 15 or so, I got really interested in reading books about religion and philosophy. So I read all different world religions. I read about kind of apoc apocryphal uh, Gnostic Christianity, lots of books on mysticism and stuff. I read Plato as well. And uh, I went to university, I studied philosophy, but I was really looking for some way that I could take philosophy and apply it to uh, a way of life and also a career. One day, a psychotherapist came and gave a talk to the philosophy department. And he said, if you're into philosophy, psychotherapy is not a bad profession, because there's kind of, you know, they're both about understanding human nature and stuff. So I trained as a counselor and then as a therapist. And now the funny thing is that at university, uh, traditionally, you, you study I studied Plato and Aristotle and all that stuff, mm. but the one major school of ancient philosophy that's most neglected in undergraduate philosophy curricula is the Stoics. So I hadn't studied the Stoics. And so I was into uh, meditation. I was kind of interested in therapy. I was reading Freud and Jung and R.D. Lang and stuff like that. And I was into philosophy and I felt there were like three balls that I was juggling. And then one day I kind of stumbled across the Stoics after I'd graduated. I was doing my master's degree at the time, and I felt like these three things all just suddenly crystallized into one thing. And I remember kind of joking to myself, I thought, now I don't have to read as many books. I could just read Seneca and that's like, you know, rather than having to read Heidegger and Freud and books on Buddhism and all these different things. Like, and I thought, it's all, all of the stuff that I'm looking for, the kind of contemplative meditation techniques, the kind of links with psychotherapy, the philosophy of life stuff, it's all, all that comes together in the Stoics, they're at the kind of crossover point of these three different subjects. And uh, I was getting more into cognitive behavioral psychotherapy, which is the leading modern form of evidence-based psychotherapy. And I realized that cognitive psychotherapy was originally inspired by Stoic philosophy. And mm -hmm. there were some similarities between the two. And so I started talking about that and like giving talks about it. I mean, and writing articles about it and stuff for years. And then gradually, oh gosh, I think I might've been doing it for, actually, yes, I know, round about 10 years. Wow. Um, I've been giving talks. And so as my career progressed, I'd speak at conferences to psychotherapists and stuff. And I, I trained psychotherapists for many years. 
and supervise them. And I'd be saying, you guys should read the Stoics, you know, like they kind of inspired cognitive therapy. They've got all these psychological techniques and Stoicism. And they'd be like, oh, that's really cool. Um, and then one day I thought, I'm going to write a book about this. So I wrote my first book um, about Stoicism, which is called The Philosophy of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And I tried to explain the historical and theoretical and practical connections in, a, in great detail in this one book between stoicism and CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And then I guess once I wrote that, that became my probably my niche and I got more into writing books and stuff. And so that's how um, I ended up uh, today sitting here writing a book about Socrates or whatever it is that I'm supposed to be doing. Do you treat or have you looked into uh, therapy in terms of uh, trauma and how to heal trauma at all? To some extent, um, it, my area of expertise as a psychotherapist, or most psychotherapists have a kind of general training, uh, mm. have some experience with kind of general psychotherapy practice, you might say, um, but many of them have specialisms as well. And my specialism was in treating anxiety disorders, mm. uh, particularly social anxiety disorder and uh, I also worked to some extent with road traffic accident victims okay. who had post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so I've got some experience of treating trauma of certain types. And there's other types of trauma that I wouldn't work with as much. So how do we, okay, let's look at the, I'm interested in the anxiety thing because I'm someone who had a panic attack and suffered with anxiety for a long period of my life and still sometimes do. But I'm interested in the crossover between the teaching or healing strategies from ancient wisdom, the Stoics versus modern wisdom is, is there, is one better than the other you think, or is they all just come together and, and mesh? <laughs> well, harmony? There's an answer that you might not be expecting, but I get in a way it's an obvious answer that I'm going to give, which is an evidence-based clinician. I'm professionally committed to saying that the better one, in a sense, is the evidence-based modern clinical treatment based on a formal diagnosis, Yeah. right? Because that would be like if you went to see a doctor and you said, is it better to use ancient medicine or to have the stuff that is prescribed <laughs> by doctors? Today they're going to go, oh, you should do, let's start with the stuff that's currently being prescribed based on the best medical research, right? So I, I'm going to say, first of all, let's start with, particularly for trauma, actually, um, evidence-based, empirically supported treatments. Like that's what any ethical clinical psychologist or CBT practitioner should is professionally obliged to do. However, um, stoicism can provide a broader philosophical context for that, and the two things are kind of complementary. And you know, so where stoicism would come in, and this is what I said in my first book, is that outside the consulting room, like. CBT, with some exceptions, generally speaking, is time-limited, uh, diagnosis-oriented. Mm. Uh, so you have like, you know, six weeks of therapy or whatever it is, 12 weeks, whatever, and then you kind of pop out the other end of therapy. Uh, and then, you, you know, that's your relationship with therapy in a sense over. You've maybe got a maintenance plan for strategies that you use. Maybe you'll read some more books or whatever. But the idea is you have therapy and then you stop having therapy and then you kind of go back to your like normal in a, a way. It, the idea isn't normally that CBT becomes 
like a religion to you or a yoga or a way of life. And But a lot of people say, well, CBT really helped me. And I kind of want to, it obviously has implications for life in general. Like, so why is it kind of lacking this broader context? And that stoicism can give that to people. For people who like CBT, it can give them a, a philosophical framework that's mm contributes to a whole way of life, a philosophy of life that could be permanent, mm. lifelong. And, and so therefore, actually, another area where that I'm very interested in, you may have met, I think you mentioned at the beginning that I wrote a book about what we call resilience. Yeah. Now, resilience kind of means something specific in the field of psychology. That we usually, when we're talking about resilience, we're talking about prevention of mental health problems. So everyone knows prevention is better than cure. Yeah. Psychotherapists do cure, mm. like based on diagnosis. Diagnosis means you've already got a problem. I hate to break it to you, buddy, but you've already got a problem. By the time yeah. you come and see a psychotherapist, you've got a diagnosis, you come with your diagnosis, so you get a diagnosis, you already got a problem. So it'd be better if you just didn't get, have that problem in the first place, right? If we could turn back the clock. Uh, go back to your adolescence or whenever and teach you skills that prevented you going down that path in life that caused you to end up with clinical depression or an anxiety disorder or whatever, if that was somehow possible. Now, there's a bunch of research. It's an emerging field, but there's a lot of research uh, on some very large studies on resilience building with school children, with the military, with uh, carers, for uh, or other people who are subject to a lot of stress. In their lives, we know that they're potentially going to be at risk of uh, having mental health problems further down the line. So one of the problems with result, resilience training works, but one of the, the difficulties is that we know that sometimes it's temporary. So you can teach a bunch of school kids resilience skills, and it does seem to benefit them. It makes them less likely to develop depression or anxiety over the years. Yeah. But after like a couple of years, the benefits start to wane because they, they'll maybe learn some cognitive behavioral therapy stuff, type stuff. Um, the resilience training is largely based on cognitive behavioral therapy. It's a kind of modified version of it with some other research-based skills thrown in. And the, the thing is that you teach people a bunch of skills, often they'll, they'll forget those skills after a few years. They kind of stop doing them. So the, the promise of stoicism is that maybe it would be similar to CBT-based resilience building, but it might be that stoicism is sticky, as we sometimes say, that people might do it permanently. Because once people get into it, like getting into Buddhism or something, yeah. often it's a lifelong thing. The way I like to explain that is I've never seen anybody with, uh, and I, I've made this, I've thrown this gauntlet down many times, Jay. I'll do it again on your show. Right. I'm going to have to start offering some kind of reward for this, right? <laughs> I've never seen anybody with a CBT tattoo, right? I've never seen... Albert Ellis was the founder of uh, cognitive therapy, in a sense. I've not seen anyone with an Albert Ellis or an R&T Beck tattoo or a quote from David Burns' book, Feeling Good. It's one of the best-known CBT self-help books. I've never seen anyone with a quote from that book tattooed on them, right? Mm. The closest I've seen is people have the serenity prayer on them sometimes. But that's kind of... I sort of related a cousin of, of CBT. Um, but I've seen a surprising number of stoic tattoos. So people have Marcus Aurelius tattooed on them or quotes from the meditations of Epictetus or whatever. Loads of them. There's a, a guy that has a whole page 
collecting stoic tattoos, photographs of them on Instagram or something or on the web, I think. Um, and anyway, that's an indication to me that those guys that go out and get Marcus Aurelius's face tattooed on them view it more like someone might view Buddhism, that it's like mm. a religion to them and a, a way of life, and they're committed to it lifelong. Like, and and if you want to build permanent resilience, you need you need to to be something that people are going to commit to permanently. Mm. I know that Ryan Holiday he doesn't have a tattoo of um, he's got tattoos of his books on his on his arms, oh a few of them that is. Uh, but I think that's interesting having that tattooed on you, like a quote from that, because I have seen people like you said with Marcus Aurelius and and those other quotes. Um, but yeah, you should get, you should get like a, a yeah, a royalty or something. <laughs> every time you mention it, every time someone does get a tattoo. We should set that. up a fund, like to give an award if we find anyone that's got CBT tattoo. Yeah. Like, Cause I thought the first time I said that, I thought, mate, there's bound to be someone out there, you know, and I just haven't met them yet. I've been saying this for years now and nobody's come forward yet to show me their CBT tattoo. So if like, someone is listening and they have a CBT yeah. tattoo on them, get in touch with Donald. <laughs> <laughs> you know about it, like, but the 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 point I'm making is that people read CBT books and they think they're really really cool. But say, let's I don't want to pick on some of I'll pick on David Burns's feeling good because it's a well known book. People that read that probably don't reread it every year for the rest of their lives. They probably read it once. Maybe they go back and dip into it. That's pretty a, a done deal. People that read Marcus Aurelius are still reading it like decades later. Yeah. Like it's like a Bible. To, it's like gospel to them. They go back. They reread it. Like. You know, they get really absorbed into it and committed. It's like a scripture to them. Um, but the thing is, then you have this problem of if you teach people CBT skills or give them a self-help book on it, they benefit maybe for a few years. And in some, I'm not saying this is true. I'd need to make a, some final distinctions here. But in many cases, that those skills benefit people only as long as they can remember to use them. Mm. And uh, like I say, you know, Stoicism though becomes more like a lifelong contemplative practice. Yeah. Uh, so they they keep following the Stoic path. Mm. Stoicism's for life, Jay, not just for Christmas. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that front. Um, with a couple, I got a couple more questions for you, Donald, because I do want to be respectful of your time. I could listen to you talk for ages. <laughs> Believe I like it or not, Scottish Jay, I can so, talk all day. Oh man, I can. Scottish people you. like talking. <laughs> I'll just ask like so many questions and you'll probably get sick and tired of talking <laughs> at the end of it. I'm going to probably have to bring you back on for a part two, but I wanted to... I've had a lot of coffee as well, so I can probably keep going for it. <laughs> they... That's a good thing. Okay. Yeah. Well, that, that's good to know. So I wanted to ask you, this is a two-part question and hopefully you can follow along with it and I hopefully don't lose you. But my first question is what causes someone to have anxiety in, in the first place? Where does anxiety come from? And my, yes. my second question from that is, can you cure it entirely or is it just you're building on resilience practices uh-huh. to stop it from ha- ever happening? All right. Uh, that question would take potentially, to, uh, to answer that in detail would take a long time, hours. Like this complicated question. Actually, the, the way that's sometimes framed is we the uh, the phrase I like is some the in older it doesn't occur as much, but in older books they used to talk about the cause and cure of mental health problems and the relationship between cause and cure. So it's kind of a neat way of summing it up. 
Where does anxiety come from? First, I'm going to take a step back from that and say one of the biggest problems in self-improvement, if you like, and mental health is that I mentioned earlier overgeneralization is a a tendency, a, a weakness that we all have. It's human nature. Now, a very simple example of that is we talk about anxiety as if it was one homogenous thing. So number one, there are lots of different types of anxiety. So when you go and see a psychotherapist, the first thing that they would normally do, an evidence-based psychotherapist, would be to distinguish between, you mentioned panic attacks, like traumatic anxiety, we've kind of touched on social anxiety. These are different flavors of anxiety. They have different origins, they function differently, different prognosis, they respond to different treatments. They're different things really. Just that our society lumps them all together and lumping them all together is probably our first mistake. You know, if we can separate them out, then we can deal with them more effectively. And the, the next thing I'd say is, not only are there different types of anxiety, but if you take one type of anxiety, it's not a single homogenous thing. It probably has several moving parts. Mm. So there might be behaviors, there might be physiological elements, there might be different types of cognitive element um, that all go together to bake the cake of anxiety, as it were. It's a cake baked from lots of different ingredients. And so understanding that anxiety has different ingredients I, is also one of the first steps that we need to take in order to, to cure it, to deal with it. Because some of those ingredients might be hard to change and then other ones might be easier. I, as an aside, that's why cognitive behavioral therapy is called cognitive behavioral. Because if you say, well, there are kind of feelings or sensations and then there's thoughts and then there's voluntary actions like we do your arms and legs, like you have more voluntary control over some of your actions and over some of the things you say in your head than you do over your emotions or physical sensations. Mm. So in cognitive behavioral therapy, we change cognitions and behavior in order to influence emotions, basically. So we're starting to break down how the mechanism works, even in the very name of the the therapy. Anxiety, I'll I'll talk about one type of anxiety. Um, Simplest type of anxiety is what we call simple phobia or specific phobia, like if you're frightened of snakes or spiders or something like that. And that that's the type that we have the highest success rate in treating. So we, I can, it's, if we start there, other types of anxiety are more multifaceted, a lot bit more complex. Snake phobia is like absolutely one of the easiest types of uh, phobia. We have like about a 90% success rate in treating that in a few hours, basically, by using a technique called exposure therapy. Ah. So Snake Freud and early 20th century psychotherapists tended to believe that anxiety was caused either by repressed sexual desire or by a traumatic experience in childhood yeah. or possibly at a later date. And so at different times in the history of psychotherapy, the weird thing is those explanations kind of seem plausible. Um, Freud literally thought that animal phobias were repressed castration anxiety. And and now we know he was wrong. And uh, actually, if someone has a snake phobia, it's probably not because a snake attacked them when they were little. It's probably, there's probably not a trauma. It's amazing how many therapists believed that mental health problems must be caused by childhood traumas. And actually in many cases, that's not true, right? So snake phobia. Why do people have snake phobia? Because there's a genetic predisposition towards having snake phobias. 
right? People tend to have, the research shows that some phobias are more common than others. The types of phobias that are statistically more common are ones that serve an evolutionary function, it seems. So it looks like we are hardwired to be phobic towards certain animals. Why isn't that better known? Because it evolves in different phases at different developmental stages in childhood. Um, so children become anxious about dogs, usually around about two years old and a little bit mm. older. It varies somewhat, but different phobias will manifest themselves usually at different ages, right? So the it's not so much a traumatic experience, more like we're already hardwired in many cases to have phobias for certain types of animals. And then what seems to be more a problem isn't that something has happened to us, that something hasn't happened to us, mm. right? And what hasn't happened to most people is a safe, prolonged, expo repeated exposure to yeah. the thing that makes them anxious. So most people, people often have snake phobias because they've never been around snakes that much. There mm. might be exceptions to that. Maybe there is someone that was attacked by a snake from their child. But generally, it's because they they're hardwired to be prone to anxiety about snakes and then they've not been around snakes in the right way that much yeah. like and not long enough to get used to them and so often phobias are caused by lack of exposure rather than having a, a trauma but there are, it can sometimes be that a traumatic event uh, mm -hmm. causes anxiety later in life so the, the main way we remedy that is by doing the opposite and exposing somebody repeatedly under controlled conditions for a prolonged period to so we get them to handle snakes or we show them photographs or movie clips of snakes for longer than they would normally tolerate because uh i'll, I'll tell you this little story because it'll make it really clear if you had someone who's got a snake phobia let's stick with snake phobias and you put them in a room full of snakes like in indiana jones and the uh <laughs> Um, and we could take, let's take heart rate as an index of anxiety. Like there's other ways to measure anxiety, but heart rate is actually pretty reliable. Not 100%, really, it's pretty reliable. Um, what's going to happen to their heart rate if you put them in a room full of snakes? It's going to go up. Like, yeah, this is the easy question, right? Yeah. So it's going to go up. Actually, it'll shoot up to almost double its normal resting level within five seconds or so, right? as if you were running really hard, like so it's going to go boom, boom, boom. So anyone with phobia can answer that question really quickly, right? The next question as a clinician I would normally ask somebody is, well, what happens next? Well, they can either freeze. Uh, they can either get really, really scared, like let me out. They can go crazy, all kinds of things. They can have a heart attack sometimes or be brought on heart attack um, or they think they're having a heart, a heart attack, attack or a panic they attack. That's, that happens in panic disorder. People with panic yeah. disorder often believe they're having heart attacks, but actually the research shows they, it, it's extremely unlikely that they would. Um, if anything, you know, they, uh, it's uh, mistakenly believing that uh, they're experiencing a heart attack that contributes to the, the anxiety, and we find in many cases. What would, so what's going to happen to their heart rate if they just stay in the room? You mentioned that they might get out of the room. You're right, actually. They would have a very powerful drive to get out of the room or just not go in in the first place. Well, what happens if there's... Uh, first of all, they might stay in the room if there's a therapist or if it was a child, an adult, beside them saying, encouraging them to stay in the room. Right? That might be a reason why they'd stay a bit longer 
right? Yeah. And if someone was talking them into doing it and reassuring them. So say they stayed in the room longer than normal, what would happen to their heart rate? And let's assume they didn't have a heart attack and die, because that's yeah. that actually that, that tends not to happen. Right? So well, what would what would happen next? My uneducated guess would be that the heart rate, if they started getting used to the environment and all the snakes, it would go progressively down, right? Yeah. So usually people are a lot bit hesitant to go, well, I guess it would go down. Because most people with phobia by this point already are starting to think, I guess I've but the cure for phobias is sort of obvious, <laughs> like in a way. But yeah, you're right. Your heart rate will go down. And they go, well, how long does that take? Well, it varies. But within, say, 5, 10, 15 minutes, roughly, you'd expect it to go down to close to its uh, original resting level. And then what happens if the person leaves the room and you put them back in the room with the snakes the next day? Suppose they waited until their heart rate went down to almost its normal level. And then the next day you put them in a room full of snakes. What would happen? I personally believe that their heart rate wouldn't go up because they've already had that understanding from being in the room with the snake. You're half right. What would typically happen is that their heart rate would go up, but not as high as before. Yeah. And it, it would abate or it would it would reduce more quickly. So it might have taken 10 minutes before 15 minutes or maybe even an hour. But this time it might only take five minutes or so. And then the next day you put them in, the heart rate will go up, but not anywhere near as high and it will reduce much more quickly until eventually, as you suggested, with a little bit of repetition, like a prolonged exposure under the right conditions, uh, the anxiety will extinguish completely. And usually what with a simple phobia, when people uh, extinguish their anxiety, it, it's pretty much permanent. Uh, it's, it's not common that it comes back again in the future unless something weird happens that would explain a relapse. But typically once you habituate, especially if you continue then to um, pick up snakes or, or look at clips of them or whatever, you, you'll probably desensitize or uh, habituate to snakes for life. I'm fine with snakes. It's spiders that get me. Spiders. Uh, I, I was scared of spiders when I was a kid. And before I even knew about therapy, I just made myself pick them up and stuff and kind of wait for the anxiety to go away. Um, and it, so some people will say, well, look, it's too much. To, I can't handle doing that. It's freaking me out too much. In which case you would say, well, you, the therapist will construct what's called a graduated hierarchy of exposure. So they'll get a lot of flip chart and they'll go, let's think of things that freak you out vis-a-vis -vis spiders. So if we had a spider at the other side of the room, if we had a spider in your lap, if we had a spider in a jam jar, if we just looked at a photograph of a spider, if we say the word spider, like if you watch a YouTube video about a tarantula or something like that, and then you would rate each one of those from zero to 100% in terms of how anxious it makes you feel, right? And then, so you can put them in a hierarchy and rank order. And you could say, like, let's say number one is if we just throw you in a room, like, uh, like a, what do you call those? Like a, like a ball pit or what, like, it's those, throw you in a bucket full of spiders or something, right? Oh. You go, oh no, that would be right at the top of the list. That'd be sort But what if we just had a little rubber spider? Like, you'd say, well, that would be like two out of 10 things. That'd be a bottom of the scale. So probably you could start at the bottom and desensitize, but actually, normally uh, you, you'd start about two thirds of the way up or yep. more. Like, so you go, well, how close to the top can we begin? 
Like, what's the most tolerable thing that you could start with? And someone might say, well, I don't like the idea much, but a spider in a jar on the desk in front of me, that'd be like seven out of 10 anxiety. So therapists might say, would you be cool if we started work on that then? Like, would that be would that be tolerable? Like, if I was here beside you, like, and we were working through it together and the client would say, well, I wouldn't like it, but I guess I could do that. Like, and the therapist would say, well, do you want to get better? How much do you like having a phobia versus not having one? Like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, you talk me into it. <laughs> and so then you do your exposure therapy and then you build up gradually. So if you desensitize to one of these situations, you'll normally find the anxiety goes down significantly in relation to the other ones as well. There's a little bit of art and a little bit of work to that, but that's generally how it works. Now with social anxiety, the, the success rate is a bit lower. With phobias, it's 90%. With social anxiety, it's about 75% on average. Why would that be? People with social anxiety don't have phobias for people's faces, right? It's not the sight of other people that's the main source of anxiety. Research on social anxiety shows that it mainly takes the form of a fear of negative evaluation. Yep. So it's the idea that other people might be looking at you and thinking that judging you're you, yeah. or judging you or whatever. Now that's less, so that's less tangible. It's harder to expose yourself to that for a prolonged period of time. because It's more fleet of a fleeting thing by its nature. Um, so we've got that. Then you have to get a lot bit more creative and think of ways where you could construct situations where someone could get used to feeling judged by other people and the anxiety would wear off naturally. So that's harder than just doing, it requires a little bit more creativity than just doing animal exposure. Uh, for instance, um, you might, there are many ways that you could do this, but you might with clients, I used to go into coffee shops and get them to do things like, you know, uh, just accidentally knock something over that they'd normally find really embarrassing to do, like spill some water or something like that, right? And they go, oh my God, that's so embarrassing. I could never do that. But we sometimes call it shame attacking. So mm-hmm. we get people to do things that would be deliberately kind of embarrassing to them until they just get over themselves and it, it doesn't embarrass them anymore. So now we have that requires a little bit more effort, but most anxiety responds to some variation of exposure therapy. Although, like I said, the anxieties come in different flavors. So we see already social anxiety has got more cognitive structure. It's more of a thinking anxiety. So you'd have to construct the exposure in a slightly different way. Traumatic anxiety is, to, to I'm oversimplifying here, but to a greater extent, it's more anxiety about being reminded of events that happened in the past. So therefore the treatment would focus more on visualizing or recalling past events for a prolonged period in a repeated controlled manner in order to desensitize to them and so on and so forth for other mm. forms of anxiety. I think for the animal one and even for the people judging you, I think there's this unhealthy fear attached to it. And when I was growing up, it was always, okay, this animal is dangerous. Don't even go anywhere near it. So I was afraid of being hurt by that particular animal. And then as I got older, I was like, when I was a kid, I wasn't afraid of anyone. Like I, I didn't have any anxiety going up to any, any person. Like I walk up to any adult anywhere and have a strike up a conversation with them. I just didn't have that level of fear attached to my my brain during that time and then as i got older and and developed a little bit more then i had that fear go right in uh-huh. <laughs> and it just created uh, a ton of problems and and still to this day like i'm very much an introvert it might shock you to 
think that because I've got a podcast and I'm talking yeah. to people all the time. But that's just been my gradual working through the yeah. the weakness that I had in my life and then healing it as best as I possibly can. Yeah. Um, but I, I just find it interesting how we do associate. I think the second biggest fear for a lot of people is public speaking because of that very thing. They think, oh, is everyone judging me while I'm up here? Is that vulnerability state of things? So your, your brain and your body are trying to protect you from any, yeah. any harm. Is that – so that's sort of like a normal thing, isn't it? Like a lot of people have that yeah. these days. So we sh- yeah. I think we should get used to it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. And, it you know, it's fairly normal to have that kind of anxiety, but some people have it much more severely. And for some people it's crippling and debility. You know, they barely leave the house because the social anxiety is so severe. Um, I think we can all benefit from overcoming it to some extent. And it raises an interesting question to bring it back to Stoicism. The Stoics, so a couple of things. First of all, the Stoics seem to have known this, or they, they had at least the general idea. And actually other ancient writers did, even Aesop, the author of Aesop's Fables, seems to have this idea that repeated prolonged exposure leads anxiety to reduce. Now that's remarkable because psychotherapists in the 20th century didn't know that. So if you went to Freud and said you had spider phobia, he said, lie down in that chaise long, facing away from me, and I want you to tell me about your dreams and tell me about your mother and like we'll look for the symbolic uh, significance of your anxiety. And even Freud would have admitted that's unlikely to cure your spider phobia in most cases. So it seems weird. It seems having had this little discussion, surely it seems pretty obvious yeah. that exposure therapy would work. It's a common sense type of therapy, especially when you know a little bit about the physiology of it and how it works and stuff. And we have loads of research from clinical trials and stuff that shows really robustly that exposure therapy works. But 20th century psychotherapists, um, most of them didn't know that. And so they were doing everything except Mm. exposure therapy. And yet the Stoics realized this. And not only that, the Stoics thought, hang on a minute, couldn't we do that to everything? Couldn't we do exposure therapy in our... And by the way, it also works if you... There's what we call um, real-world exposure, whereby this would be like having a real spider in front of you. But you could also uh, watch a video of a spider, or you could say close your eyes and imagine a spider falling over the back of your hand. And if that provokes anxiety, then that can also be used to lead to habituation. It's not as effective as real-world exposure, but it's almost as effective. The Stoics did a lot of imaginal exposure. So they would imagine uh, poverty, exile, torture, uh, disease, and even death uh, in order to overcome their anxiety about all of these future threats. Seneca talks about this quite a lot. He calls it premeditatio malorum, premeditating bad events in the future or adversity. And uh, so someone might say, well, if you do that and everything, wouldn't you just be completely indifferent you know you you don't want to desensitize to death surely Mm. but the thing is that if you habituate to death it's not that you become completely indifferent to it it's just that you cease to be freaked out by it right so Seneca would then say I still don't want to die but the idea of dying doesn't give me nightmares anymore it doesn't it doesn't make me it doesn't make my heart rate show up it doesn't make me tremble like and in fact you know actually if you're less anxious you'd probably be more 
able to protect yourself and act in a healthy way because strong emotions often cloud our judgment and make us do more dangerous things, right? Yeah. So ironically, habituating to all these future sources of threat helps us to, to cope better with them. Mm. Um, you know, so I I I think uh, the Stoics were way ahead of the game uh, in that regard. Yeah. And uh, you know, we can we can learn a lot from. I think we can. And Donald, my friend, this has been a very informative and helpful conversation for myself. I've learned a lot and I think my brain is going to be on fire for the rest of the day, <laughs> knowing me, because I love being a deep kind of thinker. But my final question for you, this is my all time right. favorite question. Right. I ask everyone at the end of all my conversations. It is a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment You've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of argument. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? That's a really good question. It's a question about values. Mm. I think what I'd like it to say about my life is that I tried to understand life and that I made a genuine effort to see through all the smoke and mirrors of society and to really achieve some insight, like that I tried to understand what it was all about. And I guess from the day that I went off and I began studying philosophy as a young man, like that's the kind of quest that I'd been on, just get some insight into what life was all about. And I'd be satisfied on my deathbed if I looked back and, and thought, if whether or not I'd succeeded, the thought as, as long as I sincerely tried to do that, I'd feel like my life was was well spent. Mm. It's a great answer, a great send-off message, actually. And you're right, it is a question about values. It's also a question about leadership and good character at the same time. So I just want to say thank you so much for this uh, very insightful conversation. I meant what I said. I'm going to have to bring you back on again because there's so much more that I want to ask you. <laughs> um, but it's more my more my fault with my time <laughs> than yours. Um, but thank you so much, my friend, for for joining me today on the Storybox podcast. Likewise, it's been a pleasure, Jay. Thanks very much. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.